0: Well, as people are filing in here, uh, let's take our Bibles this morning and, not this morning, this evening. And let's open them to the seventh chapter of the book of Acts. Having completed Acts 6 last time, we're now moving into Acts uh, chapter 7. Um, I think I've shared with you before that the title, The Acts of the Apostles, which is what a lot of the study Bibles call the book of Acts, I don't think that's such a great title. It's really The Acts of the Holy Spirit. And it's really not a book about the miracles that God did through the apostles. It's really focused on two apostles, Peter and Paul. And uh, well, here's a chart showing you the part of the book of Acts where uh, Peter is dominant, the first 12 chapters. And then Paul becomes dominant beginning in chapter 13 through the end of the book. And as Paul becomes dominant, he kind of repeats a lot of the things Peter did. So in so doing, Luke, our author, is showing that Paul's ministry is just as legitimate as Peter's. And that's a big deal to Theophilus, a Gentile, who was probably reached through Paul. So the book is really about the acts of the Holy Spirit through Peter and Paul. But there's a bridge um, between Peter and Paul. And that's uh, the first deacon selected in Acts 6, a man named Stephen. So his story... Uh, which is really half of chapter 6, all of chapter 7, and the after effects in chapter 8. His story is sort of a bridge between those two great apostles, uh, Peter and Paul. If you don't have a Stephen, you don't have a Paul, as you'll, as we'll see here in chapter 7. So that's a, that's sort of the way to look at this material that we're moving into now. So we can take, uh, Stephen's story and divide it into four. We have his arrest. Uh, we saw that last time. End of chapter six. Then there's his defense before the Sanhedrin. And that's a long sermon. Uh, if you think my sermons are long, you ain't seen nothing yet. And that sermon leads to, number three, his execution, his stoning, which is going to happen at the end of chapter seven. So that's part three. And then part four is Stephen's um, impact brought against Christendom, Christianity, uh, the third persecution by the Jewish leadership. And that's in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. So the last time we were together, we saw Stephen's uh, arrest. And that took us right into chapter 7, verse 1, where now Stephen is brought before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish uh, religious governing body. And it says in chapter 7, verse 1, that the high priest said, you know, to Stephen, are these things so? He's, He's been accused falsely of speaking against the temple and things of that nature. And so he's asked point blank in front of the Sanhedrin. He's just been arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin. Are these things so? Which gives Stephen an opportunity to speak to the Sanhedrin in the form of his defense, which is going to begin in verse two, and it's going to go all the way through verse fifty three. So what you have there uh, beginning in verse two through verse fifty three is a is a history lesson. It's given by a man, uh, Stephen, under pressure, uh, largely off the top of his head. But it's it's stunning the number of scriptures that were in his mind. And he weaves all of these scriptures together, giving not a comprehensive view of Israel and her history, but giving a selective uh, perspective. And he's weaving all of this material together to show that the nation of Israel, although they are God's elect nation... Is wrong. I mean, they're wrong with Jesus, rejecting Him, and they've been wrong most of the time, is His point. And He gets to the end of His sermon and He's going to say the current generation is repeating that pattern. And this, it's not really a sermon on how to win friends and influence people, because they are so upset with Him at the conclusion of this that they, they execute him via stoning right there on the spot. And so his death is recorded. He's the first uh, martyr of the church age. And Saul, who is presiding over his execution, and, and maybe I would think was there uh, when Stephen gives this defense before the Sanhedrin, his heart is impacted by this. And we know that his heart is impacted because Saul gets very, very angry and uses this as an opportunity to really wipe out the new church. And yet I believe that the Holy Spirit is going to take that seed planted by Stephen, water it, which will lead to the conversion of Saul, who will become Paul in Acts chapter 9. Uh, and the rest of the book of Acts is about really Paul the Apostle. And he's going to become a big deal in Christianity. If you don't have a Saul becoming a Paul, you might as well take 13 letters in your Bible and just tear them out. <laughs> he's a major contributor to our New Testament. And the, the link in the chain leading to the conversion of Saul is this man named Stephen. So that's where this sermon that we're going to start studying here fits into the big picture. The sermon has six parts. Um, You see on the left there the the verse divisions. Verses two through five, he's going to emphasize Abraham's partial obedience. Verses six through thirty-eight, he's going to get across the point that the nation of Israel gets things right the second time. They never get it right the first time. And he's going to use the life of uh, Joseph to prove that point and the life of Moses to prove that point. And then part three of the sermon is going to be how the nation rebelled against Moses when he was on the mountain, Mount Sinai, And he was just gone for 40 days. And the nation, while he was gone, led by Aaron, the high priest, built a golden calf. And then part four of the sermon, verses 42 through 45, is how the nation became polytheistic. uh, Which is a total mess up (laughs) because God revealed himself as, you know, hero Israel. The Lord your God is one monotheistic. And then part five of the sermon is the nation kind of looked at the tabernacle and then later the Solomonic temple as a good luck charm. As long as the temple was standing, they thought no harm could come to them. And Stephen is going to explain in verses 46 through 50 that that neither the temple nor the tabernacle were ever intended to be a permanent habitation of God. In fact, God has left that temple and he's now indwelling his people. And then part six of the sermon, here's the grand finale, verses 51 through 53, is the current generation, uh, through their rejection of Jesus or Yeshua, is imitating these same rebellions. And then that in turn is going to lead to his execution. Stephen's execution, uh, verses 54 through verse 60. So that's sort of the, the big picture. So Stephen starts with Abraham because the nation of Israel started with Abraham. Uh, and Stephen's going to make the point that Abraham was a tremendous man of God, but his obedience was sort of like a C plus. He, he obeyed God most of the time, but he never completely obeyed God. And so that's what he's accomplishing here in verses two through five. So let's pick it up here with verse two of chapter seven. Stephen now is speaking. And he said, hear me, brethren, fellow Jews and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. So the story of the nation of Israel, and you guys are familiar with this if you've been tracking with us on Sunday mornings as we're going through Genesis verse by verse. So I kind of think it's neat that the Holy Spirit would have us in both sections of the Bible at the same time. Genesis, the long story. Acts 7, sort of the Reader's Digest uh, account. But the story of the nation of Israel begins with the calling of Abram. His name hadn't even been changed yet to Abraham. From the Ur of the Chaldeans, which is there uh, in the east between the Euphrates and the Tigris, modern-day Iraq. So Abram was an idolater. He was a pagan. He was no doubt influenced by the idolatry that happened in the prior chapter at the Tower of Babel. And God saw it at that point because every other nation, owing its roots to the Tower of Babel, because there was only one language, and God confounded the language. And so all the nations took with them the idolatrous system of the Tower of Babel into all of their surrounding nations. God wanted to form now a brand new nation through which to bless the world, uh, not, the, not the least of which is the Messiah is going to come to the world, Jesus, Yeshua, through the nation of Israel. So to form a brand new nation, uh, independent of the universal impact of the Tower of Babel, God calls this man Abram. You see it at the end of Genesis 11 into Genesis 12. He's given specific promises by God. He's told to walk by faith. Uh, God is sort of sanctifying him, separating him from his idolatrous roots. He's to go to a land that he doesn't even know where he's going. But God said, I'll, I'll, I'll lead you where you need to go. And through this process, God is giving to this man Abram promises, and through these promises is gonna come the nation of Israel. So this is, uh, Abram there in Ur of the Chaldeans in Mesopotamia before he went to Haran. Uh, Haran is that circle, uh, up top, uh, north. And as you look at verse 2, you'll notice the word glory. It says, He said, Stephen speaking, Hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. So notice that the glory, and this could be a reference to the Shekinah glory of God, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, in his Acts commentary, takes it that way. That the glory of God manifested outside the borders of Israel. Israel became, um, well, what was Canaan there on the Mediterranean Sea, the land that God was taking Abraham to, later became known as Israel. And so what you see here right out of the gate is the glory of God appears outside of the borders of Israel. So this is going to fit very well with a point that Stephen is going to make in verse 48. However, the most high does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. So these Jews looked at the temple as a good luck charm. And Stephen starts this sermon by saying, God doesn't need the temple. God doesn't need the tabernacle. God doesn't even need the borders of Israel. Because he manifested his Shekinah glory to Abram in a, in a distant land, the Ur of the Chaldeans, about 350 miles or so east of Canaan. And so what you're going to see in this sermon is how God glor- uh, 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 manifested Himself, I should say, in all kinds of locations outside of Israel. He will manifest Himself in Egypt to Joseph. Uh, he will manifest Himself in Midian, modern-day Saudi Arabia, to Moses. He will manifest Himself... To the people of God at Mount Sinai. He manifested himself to Abram in the Ur of the Chaldeans. So when Stephen gets to his final point there, verse 48, that God is not bound by a temple, he's already sort of built up to that point by showing that God doesn't need, you know, the temple. He doesn't need the tabernacle. He can manifest his glory wherever he wants. And so the fact that, that God has decided to indwell his people in the church age as individual temples, which he's doing today, right? Our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That should come as no shock to you because God is not confined, you know, to operating according to the Jewish temple and tabernacle. Now, he did manifest himself in the temple and the tabernacle, you know those are beautiful things but God is not confined to that so this is kind of an important thing to remember because a lot of Christians have this mindset that God only works in our church or God only works in our country or God only God only works in my denomination or our denomination uh when we start thinking that way we've taken God and we've really narrowed him Unnecessarily and unbiblically because God works anywhere he wants, anytime he wants, any place he wants, through any person he wants. God doesn't need a denomination. He doesn't need a particular church. He doesn't need a particular group of people. If he works through such a group, praise the Lord, But but that's just out of his grace and goodness. He doesn't need anything. And so we should never develop a mindset that God can work on this side of town, you know, but not across the railroad tracks, you know, kind of mentality. Um, as you go down to verse 3, uh, it says, And said, this is God now speaking to Abram in the Ur of the Chaldeans, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. It's a quote there from Genesis 12, verse 1. Separate yourself from your family. Uh, God is sanctifying Abram, separating him from his idolatrous past to create this new nation. So how did Abraham do, or Abram do, following that command there, Genesis 12, verse 1? Leave your country, he did that, and your relatives, he didn't do that because who went with him lot went with him and who was lot lot was abraham's or abram's nephew genesis twelve one says now the lord said to abram go forth from your country and from your relatives <laughs> and from your father's house to the land which i will show you but verse 4 says so abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot was with him. I thought God said, separate yourself from your relatives. So at least Abraham was moving in the right direction. But his obedience is really partial. I mean, God was pretty clear, separate yourself from your family, which he didn't do. And then God said, go to the land that I'm showing you. Now, that actually happened. Um, he left and he went there up north to Canaan. But when you get to Genesis 12 and verse 10, it says this, now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land. Well, God never said go to Egypt. So <laughs> see what's going on with Abram. His his obedience maybe is like a C plus. I mean, he went to the land God showed him, but then he then he got out of the land pretty quick, and he moved down <clears throat> uh, southwest to Egypt because there was a famine in the land. And Genesis twelve never tells Abram to go to Egypt, and he should have just trusted God in the midst of the famine and stayed in Canaan, but he didn't, and he left. And besides that, he never really separated himself completely from his family because Lot was with him. And there was someone else with him. It's in verse 4. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. Uh, where is uh, Haran? Haran is um, up, up north there, the circle up top. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran from there. From where? From Haran. After his father died. So you get the impression that Abraham not only took a Lot with him, he took his dad with him. Who was Abraham's dad? His, his dad was Terah. So after the flood... Noah has three sons. They're with him on the ark. From those three sons, the world is populated. One of those sons is named Shem, and through Shem comes Terah. Through Terah comes Abraham. Abram first, and then his name is changed to Abraham. And God said, God was very clear, leave Ur of the Chaldeans separate yourself from your family and hear what we're learning as you look at verse 4 that Abraham didn't do that. It gives you the impression that he brought dad, uh, Terah, his father's name is Terah, uh, with him to um, Haran. And he didn't actually leave Haran, which is up north, and then finally move into Canaan until after his father Terah had died in Haran. So when you look at the big picture, you know, Abraham does obey, but it's certainly not a perfect obedience at all. He takes Lot with him. He takes Dad with him when God said don't do that. And then he d- he gets to the land, the promised land, but he doesn't stay there. He gets he panics. He hits the panic button because of a famine, and then he goes to Egypt. And this is not the kind of sermon that the Sanhedrin wants to hear. Because what Stephen is doing is he's pointing out the warts in Israel's history. So because we believe that God made an unconditional covenant with Abraham, these uh, missteps do not cut Israel out of the picture. You know, you would think that because Abraham didn't do it exactly like God said, God would cut the cord with Israel's national promises. But our system of eschatology, our study of the end, will not allow that because we believe that when God entered into this, these promises with Abraham and this covenant with Abraham, it was unconditional. It was never based on Abraham's performance because, as you can see here, his performance was somewhat incomplete. And so that's a that's a wonderful thing to think about because your salvation as a Christian is exactly the same. Uh, God doesn't say, um, "I'm going to give you salvation, but you're on probation. Don't mess up, because if you mess up, I'm going to pull out the carpet from under you." Uh, just as Abraham and the covenant that he received was unconditional, salvation to us is unconditional. It's given to us as a gift. And so, even when we mess things up, which we have a tendency to do, can I get an amen on that? I just wonder if I'm talking to the right crowd here. You guys look very spiritual here on a Wednesday night. I, I don't know if you, if you guys ever have any sinful issues in your lives or disobedience. I mean, I know I do it's It's a wonderful thing, you know, to remember that, look, Second uh, Timothy two verse thirteen reminds us that if we are faithless he remains faithful, for he can't deny himself. So Abraham's partial obedience doesn't cut Israel out of the picture any more than our partial obedience uh, takes away our salvation. Now, if God entered into this arrangement with Abraham on the basis of merit, then the replacement theologians could be right, that God took away Israel's covenant. Um, if, If God entered into our salvation arrangement on the basis of our merit, then the Arminians could be right. You could be saved one day and not saved the next day. But God has decided not to deal with Abram and not to deal with us on the basis of merit, but on the basis of grace. And yet Stephen is very good at pointing out that Abraham, uh, for the most part, you know, obeyed, but he didn't obey completely. And Stephen historically is building to the point where the current generation is doing the exact same thing. They're not being completely obedient to God in their rejection of Jesus. This is just the first uh, leg, if you will, in Stephen's impromptu speech that he's giving is he's weaving all of this old testament material together. By the way, he's probably quoting here uh the Septuagint which is the Greek translation of Hebrew Bible completed uh, a little under 2 centuries before the time of Christ. So you have to understand that before Jesus ever took one step on planet Earth, not only was there an Old Testament, but it was actually translated into Greek uh, in what's called the LXX. And so when you see these capital letters, uh, most people believe Stephen is using uh, the Greek translation of Hebrew Bible. It continues on in verse 5. It says, He gave him no uh, inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. So what was um, Abraham promised? He was promised in Genesis 15 a track of real estate that goes all the way from the Nile in Egypt to, to the Euphrates River in modern day Iraq. Uh from the roughly from the Nile to the Euphrates, from modern day Egypt to modern day Iraq. That's what Abraham was given by God unconditionally. And when Abraham was alive on the earth, how much of that property did he actually receive? Next to nothing. The only thing he really got was he purchased a burial plot? you recall in genesis twenty three um, in Hebron, I think it was, and he died you know in that condition, having this little tiny burial plot for his wife. He was later buried there, but he he never received everything that God promised, so that creates our Doctrine of the millennial kingdom where these promises will be realized one day, Abraham's descendants one day on this planet, planet Earth will have jurisdiction over that entire land. So it says in verse five, but he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. The rest of verse 5 says, and yet even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. Probably a quote from Genesis 12 verse 7 there in the Septuagint. So it's kind of interesting. God said, Abraham, your descendants are going to be as the stars of the sky innumerable they're going to be as numerous as the dust of the earth and they're going to be as numerous as the sand of the seashore i mean think of all of the sand on all of the beaches of the world that's that's what your descendants are going to be like as i'm raising up this special nation to bless the world through you and we have a slight problem <laughs> He's childless. All the way back in Genesis 11 verse 30, it tells us that. It says Sarai, that was the name of his wife before his, her name, Genesis 17 was changed to Sarah. Sarai was barren and she had no child. And these are people that are, you know, today we'd call them senior citizens. Seasoned citizens, whatever term you want to use. I mean, you're dealing with people in their 80s and 90s, roughly, and she's barren, and it's sort of like, did I mishear what God said? (laughs) That through my and that's why they tried to make Eliezer of Damascus. You remember Genesis 15, their heir. And God says, no, Eliezer of Damascus in your household, Genesis 15, is not your heir. Your heir is going to come forth from your own body. And that's why they got into the business of helping God. You know, poor God, he can't fulfill this. This is just too big. So they developed this plan, as you know from Genesis 16, where Abraham would impregnate Hagar. And through Hagar, this lineage would come. And the only thing Abram did when he did that is he created a, a group of people that have become perennial opponents of Israel. And so God needs no help in fulfilling his word. At the right time, Genesis 21, God gave life to Sarah's womb And she became pregnant with Isaac and through Isaac came Jacob and through Jacob came Jacob's dozen who became the 12 tribes. And through the 12 tribes would come these innumerable descendants. So the the whole story of Abraham is just so it's such a wonderful story because it reveals a guy who believed God. But he didn't believe God completely. You know, poor God needs some help. Uh, let me see if I can grease the skids for God a little bit. Grease the wheels. Let's create, El- let's recruit Eliezer of Damascus. God says don't do that. It's gonna be from your own body. Well, let me impregnate Hagar. No, don't do that. It's gonna be through Sarah. Uh, separate yourself from your family. Okay, I'll, I'll start moving, but I'm gonna take Lot and Dad with me. Uh, go to the land of Canaan. He did that, but he got, he panicked. He hit the panic button and went down to Egypt. And, uh, it's just a great story because it reminds us of ourselves and how we need to, it's a, it's a exhortation for us to continue to walk with God and try to do things His way, uh, under His power. And so Stephen's point right at the beginning is Israel has never been 100% obedient. They're not being obedient right now. That shouldn't shock you because look at what our progenitor, you know, look at what his obedience was like. It was, it was a C plus. If that, it was good, but it wasn't complete. He now moves into the second part of his sermon, verses 6 through 38, where his point is Israel gets things right the second time. And he's using history to prove his point. Israel never gets it right the first time, ever. But she gets it right the second time. And Stephen proves that point by pointing to the example of how they treated Joseph, verses 6 through 16. And if that weren't enough, he proves his point historically by how they treated Moses, verses 17 through 38. In both cases, as you'll see as we go through this, um, they rejected God's preeminent servant, Israel did, Joseph and Moses, the first time. But the second time around, they submitted to uh, the authority of Joseph and Moses. And Stephen is just making a simple point. He says the current generation, as he's speaking to the Sanhedrin, is doing the exact same thing right now. You're rejecting Yeshua, Jesus, nationally. So so you're getting it wrong. But don't worry. um, At some point in the yet future, in the events of the end times, you'll get it right the second time. And these are people that Looked at themselves as the most spiritual people in Israel, and they did not want to hear this. In fact, as he's speaking, uh, what they're doing is they're like, as you'll see it as we get to the end of this sermon, they're they're stopping their ears, they're plugging their ears where they don't have to listen. You know, today if young collegians don't like an idea, you know they can retreat to what are called these safe spaces. Uh, where their presuppositions, you know, are unchallenged. Um, so if you're a conservative speaker or if you're pro-life, uh, and if you go on a campus and you present conservative or pro-life ideas, you know, you're accused of invading the safe space of somebody where they've got it all set up where, you know, you can li- live in a, a bubble world, Without having your assumptions or presuppositions challenged. It's called safe spaces. And that's kind of what's happening here with the Sanhedrin. Stephen is invading their safe space to the point where they start to plug their ears where they don't have to listen to what he is, is, is saying. And then at the end of this, you're gonna see that they start screaming at him at the top of their lungs. They have no vote. Uh, it's mob rule where they, where they kill him, you know, right there on the spot. So the second part of the sermon, after Abraham's partial obedience, he goes into the fact that Israel gets it right the second time. Never the first time. And he, uh, demonstrates this from the story of Joseph, verses uh, 6 through 16. Notice verse 6, but God spoke to this effect, Stephen speaking, that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land and they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. Now that's what God said would happen all the way back in Genesis 15 and verse 13. It says, God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and they will be slaved and oppressed for 400 years. Genesis 15 verse 16 says, Then in the fourth generation they, Israel, will return here, Canaan, for the wrongdoing of the Amorite, that's the Canaanites that are going to be eradicated under Joshua, uh, is is not yet uh, complete. So this is uh, one of those prophecies that's a short-term prophecy. Uh, as he starts the story of Joseph, he reminds the nation that God made this prediction in the short run that you're going to go into uh, a foreign land, in this case Egypt, for 400 years... But you're going to come out of that land, and you're kind of going to come right back here with great possessions. And we know that that prophecy was fulfilled. It's fulfilled in the book of Exodus. Uh, it was fulfilled in the book of Numbers. And this is why I always recommend uh, one of my favorite books if you're looking for something to study. It's uh, Every Prophecy of the Bible by John Walvoord. And it reads sort of like an encyclopedia. He goes through all of these prophecies in the Bible that have already happened. Like this one here about being in a foreign land for 400 years. And he shows you that they're all literally fulfilled. And his point in writing the book is it builds confidence that the prophecies yet to come that are still future will be fulfilled in the same way. So we know that in Genesis 46 and we have a year for that 1876 BC that uh Jacob uh finally with with his with his sons finally left Canaan and traveled to Egypt because he had heard that Joseph had now been elevated to second in command In Egypt. Why did Jacob leave Canaan? Genesis 38 is the answer. And we'll be getting to Genesis 38 pretty quick here Sunday morning. Not this Sunday, but probably next Sunday. It's a description of the total moral failure of the nation because they were surrounded by these wicked Canaanites. And if God had left them in Canaan, they would have been just as morally corrupt as their neighbors. So God had to get them out and get them incubated in a place called Goshen because to the Egyptians, shepherds, which is who Jacob and his sons were, they were shepherds, is loathsome. You know, we don't want anything to do with shepherds. So even though they went into polytheistic Egypt, they were sort of incubated there for a period of time. And so that's one of the reasons God had to get them out of Canaan and into Egypt. Another reason he had to get them out of Canaan into Egypt is because a famine was going to hit Canaan. And they were going to need grain in the midst of famine. In fact, if you go down to verses 11 and 12, there's a reference to that famine. It says, Now a famine came over all of Egypt and Canaan and great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there uh, the first time. Another reason God had to get his nation out of Canaan is because of what Simeon and Levi did. You remember when their daughter uh, their sister, rather, Dinah, was raped. They took vigilante justice. You know, they didn't return, uh, they didn't let the punishment fit the crime. They just wiped out everybody in Shechem. Remember that story? And when Jacob found out what Simeon and Levi had done, Jacob wasn't happy about that. Genesis 34, verse 30 says, Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land. Among the Canaanites and the Perizzites and my men being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me, and I will be destroyed, I and my household. So what you guys have done has made me an enemy amongst the Canaanites. So that's another reason why God had to get his special nation out of Canaan. Uh the Canaanites wanted to wipe out the Jews or the Hebrews. Uh, the Canaanites were morally detestable and if God had left his nation there they would have imitated the sad morality of the Canaanites. And beyond that there was a famine. So God has to do like a, a moving project here. Get him out of Canaan into Goshen. And whenever God does the work, He picks a person. And the person that was selected for this was a guy named Joseph. And Joseph is going to have a lot of really bad things happen to him when he's a teenager and his life isn't going to make any sense until he hits age 30. But once he hits age age 30, and is providentially elevated to second in command in Egypt, he then becomes the basis by which uh, the Hebrews finally leave Canaan and go to Egypt. And so that's why Stephen is rehearsing all of this. He's moving into the Joseph story. And then you look at verse 7. And it says, and whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge. So yes, God used Egypt to get his people out of Canaan, but the Egyptians abused the Jewish people, the Hebrews, and made them slaves. That means God has to judge the Egyptians even though he used the Egyptians to get his people out of Canaan. Why does God have to judge the Egyptians? Because of promises he made to Abram. Genesis 12, verse 3, I will curse those who curse you. Genesis 12, verse 3 says, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all of the families of the earth will be blessed. So I'm going to bless the world through Israel, which means Satan is going to try to blot out Israel historically, which means God has to add an additional promise that whoever curses Israel will be cursed. And that is exactly what happened to the Egyptians. God took the Egyptian army in the, through the Red Sea crossing and he drowned them. Exodus 14. Why did he drown them? He drowned them because they were drowning the Hebrews in the Nile. Exodus chapter 1. See, this is very literal. It's an in-kind curse. The one who curses you, I will curse. God killed in plague number 10 in the book of Exodus, the firstborn all over the land of Egypt. Any house that did not have the Passover lamb's blood on the doorpost, their firstborn was killed. And there was groaning when that plague hit, plague number 10, all over Egypt. And you ask yourself, why did God uh, kill the firstborn all over Egypt? And the answer is Exodus 4 verse 22, where God calls Israel his firstborn son. You abuse my firstborn son, I'm coming after your firstborn son. And it relates to a promise that God made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. So that's why Stephen is bringing this up. Verse 7, And whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge. And then the rest of verse 3 says, And God or said God, after that they will come out and serve me in this place. In other words, they're going to come out of Egypt through the Exodus event, and they're going to serve me as my special nation. Uh, It might be a, a quote there from Exodus 3 verse 12 says, certainly I will be with you, and this will be a sign to you that is I who have sent you. When, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. And God is going to accomplish all of this. He's going to start the process through this man named uh Jacob. And then you go down to verse 8 and Stephen gives more historical information. He says he gave him the covenant of circumcision. So in Genesis chapter 17, God commanded the ritual of circumcision for the Hebrews to identify themselves as God's special nation, circumcised on the eighth day, all in Genesis 17. Now, This is important because Abraham, whose name at that time was still Abram, was already justified by faith. Genesis 15 and verse 6 of Abram said, Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it, it to him as righteousness. Genesis 15 verse 6, Abram is justified by faith alone. Why is that a big deal? Because Genesis 15 comes before Genesis 17. You guys with me on that? Genesis 15, Abram is justified by faith alone. He was not justified by circumcision because circumcision had not been implemented yet by God. He was not justified by the Mosaic Law because we have to wait several centuries for the Mosaic Law to come into existence. And if you just keep reading the Bible chronologically, you'll see this. And that's why Paul in Romans 4 verses 9 through 12 uses this as an argument for justification by faith alone. His point is God has always justified people by faith alone. Look at Abram. Abram was justified by faith alone in Genesis 15, verse 6, and circumcision hadn't even been introduced yet. So keep this in mind because a lot of people today will tell you, you know, okay, um, you've been justified by faith alone. That's nice. But have you been water baptized? And so they in their thinking, they think you're justified by faith plus water baptism. You have to keep the order straight, just like justification by faith alone preceded circumcision. Justification by faith alone precedes water baptism. I mean, a person can go through their whole Christian life and never get water baptized. And if they're justified by faith alone upon death, they'll go right into heaven. Because God doesn't justify people by circumcision. He doesn't justify people by water baptism. He has one condition that He requires faith alone in Christ alone. It's just in our case, we're looking backward to Jesus, His completed work. Abraham looking forward to what Jesus would do. Abraham being justified on credit. We know what credit is, right? We're recovering right now from the holidays. Credit gives you goodies before payment. I mean we love credit. You get things before you have to pay. Abraham got something really great, justification by faith faith alone before payday, the blood of Christ. So Abraham is looking forward, we're looking backward the only difference is we know the name of the messiah Jesus Abraham didn't he was justified on the basis of credit we are not the payment has already been made but this order you know that you see here presented by Stephen is is very significant continuing on with verse 8 it says so Abraham became the father of Isaac why is that Because God did a miracle, Genesis 21, and brought life to Sarah's womb. God doesn't need any help in fulfilling his word. When God said to Sarah, this is what I'm going to do, she just started laughing. Because to her, it just looked ridiculous. Uh, But God says, why did Sarah laugh? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? I mean, with God, all things are what? All things are possible. I mean, the Bible says that over and over again. So God didn't need their help with Eleazar of Damascus. He didn't need their help with Hagar. In fact, the more they try to help God, the more they mess things up. You know, the more we try to help God with um, a spirit of religion... Gee, I know God accepts me by faith alone, but, you know, I'm gonna throw in a few good works just to help him out. The more we have that mindset, the more we just mess up our own lives. God doesn't need any help. (laughs) What he needs are people just to believe what he says. So it says in verse 8, so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. Why did he do that? Because that's what God told him to do in Genesis 17 two chapters after he'd already been justified by faith alone. So none of these people are saved by circumcision. It's just an outward symbol of an inward reality, just like baptism is today. And Isaac became the father of Jacob. And Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. Because Jacob, as we've studied on Sunday morning, had 12 sons. And those 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. And through these 12 tribes of Israel would be a fulfillment of the promise that your physical descendants would be as innumerable as the dust of the earth, the sand of the seashore, and the stars of heaven. But back to Joseph, verse 9, the patriarchs, became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. Joseph, when he was 17, you'll recall, Genesis 37, we studied it a couple of weeks ago, had two dreams. And the content of those dreams is he would be elevated over his brothers. Uh, not for Joseph's benefit, but for their benefit. Because they're going to seek... Help from him in Egypt when Joseph is age 30 for help in the midst of fam- uh, famine. And the brothers when they heard that dream didn't like it. They didn't like him being elevated over everybody else because after all he's not even the firstborn. Reuben is the firstborn. You're the eleventh born. So where do you get off, you know, with these kind of dreams, you dreamer? And, and besides, Dad put a special coat on you. And uh, we want that coat for ourselves. So you see what's happened here with Joseph? He presented himself in terms of what his role would be, and he's rejected. Down the road, 13 years later, they'll submit to him. You see Stephen's point here? Israel never gets it right the first time. They get it right the second time with Joseph, uh, but not the first time. So verse 9 says, The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. Now look at this. Yet God was with him. The more they tried to stop this plan from happening. And I I am of the persuasion that they actually believed Joseph's dreams. They just didn't want him to materialize out of jealousy. The more they tried to stop it, the more they were actually greasing the wheels to put the plan in motion. I know what we'll do. We'll we'll leave him for dead. Uh, We'll sell him as a slave eventually, ultimately into Egypt. Well, that's exactly what God's plan was. And then you go to verse 10 and the story of Joseph continues and it says, and rescued him from all of his afflictions. That's God. And granted him, look at this now, favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It's a summation of the elevation of Joseph. And Joseph is elevated because God gave him wisdom, as we're going to see in Genesis, in interpreting Pharaoh's dreams. Now that's the second example of the revelation of God taking place in Egypt, outside the borders of Israel. So God manifested himself to Abram outside the borders of Israel in Ur of the Chaldeans. He's now manifesting himself uh, to and through Joseph outside the borders of Israel in Egypt. And so you can see where Stephen is going with this. Verse 48, However the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. This this. Tabernacle, first the tabernacle under Moses, and secondly the Solomonic temple that y'all are so proud of. God doesn't need it. He chose to use it, but he doesn't need it at all. In fact, in fact, uh, Stephen's point is it shouldn't be surprising to you that this kind of glory of God left that temple and is now indwelling God's people in the church age. So all of these are historical points, you know, that are uh, pushing us to Stephen's conclusion. It says at the end of verse 10, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Look at that. He was elevated to second in command uh, in Egypt. Verses 11 and 12, which we've already read, talk about a famine in Canaan. Uh, That's stated in Genesis 41 and verse 54. It says, And the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said. Then there was a famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So there's grain in Egypt. And so that's the tool that is being used to remove the nation from Canaan to incubation in uh, Egypt. And now look at verse 13. On the second visit, why is there a reference to second here? It's the Greek word uh, deuteros, where we get the word Deuteronomy. Second law. Why is there an emphasis on second? Because this is the nation that gets it right the second time. They don't get it right the first time but they get it right the second time. Verse 13, on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. So Joseph made himself known to his brothers. This time around, his brothers accepted him. It's going to be the exact same pattern with Moses. When they will accept Moses the second time. Verse 35. And then Joseph made his brothers known to Pharaoh. I'm just going to go up to verse 16. I'm going to stop. So hang with me. I'm going to do this fast. Uh, verses 14 and 15. It says, Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob his father and all his relatives to come. Seventy-five persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt. So now we see the fulfillment of Genesis 46. The removal of the nation from Canaan to Egypt, which was God's plan all along. Second part of verse 15. And there he and our fathers died. Jacob dies in Egypt. Joseph dies in Egypt. But Joseph says, hey, when you all go back into the promised land, can you take my bones with you and bury them there? And that's such a big deal that Joseph is now incorporated into the hall of faith, Hebrews 11, because he said that. All he said was, "Take my when, when you guys go back, take my bones with you, would you? And bury him there, not here in Egypt. And God is so impressed with that, he takes Joseph's statement and puts, puts him forever in the hall of faith. I mean, what's the big deal with that statement? It shows that Joseph believed what God said. 400 years, you're going to be in Egypt, and then you're going to come right back into this land with many possessions, a prophecy literally fulfilled. And Joseph believed it to the point where he says, make sure you bring my bones with you. Not if, (laughs) but when you go back into Canaan. And he just believed what the Lord said. You know, what What is God really looking for at the end of the day? Just people that will believe him and then verse sixteen from there they removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamar in Shechem, and there the burial takes place um, in in Shechem. And so what you see there is a recounting of the Joseph story to communicate the point that Israel gets it right the second time. Abraham's initial obedience was a C plus at first. And then the second part of the sermon, Israel's initial rejections and later acceptances. Let's start with the story of Joseph. You guys get it right the second time. And just to communicate the point more thoroughly, he's going to make the same point from the life of Moses, verses 17 through 38. And then he's going to get to the end of the sermon and he says, you guys, the Sanhedrin, are making the exact same error. And by the way, God never intended this temple that you're so proud of to be permanent because God manifests Himself wherever He wants. So if He he puts His glory in a new people, called the church, that that shouldn't surprise you. So I hope you're having fun with this. This is neat stuff. And if, if you're a history teacher, this is a great way to sort of selectively recall history, uh, shaping it around a, a purpose, which is what Stephen is doing as a deacon, all from the top of his head to a hostile group called the Sanhedrin under pressure. So anyway, uh, Father, we're grateful for this sermon that we have a chance to look at in detail. Uh, I pray that you'll help us to understand this and uh, help us to understand what you would have us to do as your people in these last days. Help us to be people of faith uh, that will believe you. And not try to help you out, but believe you against all odds. And we'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen.